0: So last week, we had a lot of great interaction. I so thank you guys for that. Uh, we read through the Sermon on the Mount and what your guys' thoughts were about it, some of the things that you observed, and your uh, questions you had on it, which, Lord willing, will address. Now, I'd like to discuss, uh, just for a little while, some of the competing views of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, some of the things that have, uh, proposals that have been given over the years on what it's about and as it's pointed out, the scholars pointed out how there's so much written on the Sermon of the Mount, and it's, I'm sure it's very true. Uh, some of the lists that I use, uh, the list that I've used, I've kind of gleaned from several sources. Uh, Don Carson has a good list in his commentary on Matthew, Craig Blomberg, his commentary on Matthew, has a good list, uh, Stanley Toussaint, in his commentary on Matthew, has a good list, uh, John Martin, in an article he wrote, has a list of a few options. Some I'm kind of gleaning from, from these guys on it. Uh, first view I want to talk about, and this is the one that I mentioned before we, before we began. Uh, Stanley Toussaint, who doesn't hold this view, but he, he lists it, points, it out, points out that one view that was held is that the sermon is describing how to inherit eternal life. That the sermon is giving principles by which, as he expresses it, that as you, if you follow them, that you'll have eternal life. Now, I'm just going to just throw it out here to you guys. What's the problem with that? Oh, I know you guys know this.
1: Or God should be born again.
0: No one can fully follow the principles. Yeah, that's pointed out. That That's good. And what's that? You
1: need to be born again.
0: Yeah, you need to be born again. Right? If there is one thing that we know... There's a lot of things that we know. But if there's one thing that we know, that, what is salvation by?
1: Grace.
0: By grace, through alone. alone, through, in, in Christ alone. Right? That's how salvation works. It can't work any other way. And it's always been that way. There's never been a time where it hasn't been that way. <laughs> uh, Toussaint points out in his commentary on Matthew, just to quote him, quote, to interpret the Sermon on the Mount as a guide to good works which will bring salvation is erroneous simply because it is out of accord with the rest of, it is out of accord with the rest of Scripture, end quote. And that's just very true. Uh, Just a simple comparison of Scripture just reveals that the view is absolutely false. Um, Toussaint talks about how that was held by, by liberals, which is not surprising. And any, any, any questions on that before we move on? Seems pretty straightforward. Second view. Uh, Carson lists in his list uh, that the sermon provides an ethic for society to follow. Craig Blomberg, he points out, he says, quote, Protestant liberals have seen the sermon as a paradigm for the social gospel and a call to the church to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. A view also adopted in secular form by Karl Marx, quote. So some have seen it as basically uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a way for society to live and to follow. Uh, there's a critique of it. I, I don't remember what the, the use ter- uh, what the criticism was of it. We use another author's term, critique, in another context. I, I just simply think of the matter of the fact that the context would just completely go against that. I, I just don't think that that's what the, the sermon is. Um, third, uh, Carson and Blomberg point out, this is in their list, but here I will... Um, who is this? Yeah, I'll just quote Carson on this one. Quote, The Anabaptist Mennonite tradition interprets the ethical demands to apply to all believers in every age and, and every circumstance. The resulting philosophy of pacifism in the context of a power loving world demands the conclusion that Christians should not seek to be involved in affairs of state. End quote. So, the idea is in the Anabaptist or uh, Mennonite um, tradition, as he uses terms, that basically they follow it very strictly and it, they, they think that it results in pacifism and withdrawal from society. I am um, aware of my context in which I'm speaking this this morning. I think for most everyone in this church, that view would go over as well as a fart in church. Just to use the, use the phrase there. Uh, yeah, that would not get very far, at least in our <laughs> context, I'm sure. But uh, I, I simply don't think that that would be the case uh, either. Anybody care to comment on why they think that wouldn't work? <laughs> okay, because we're not called to withdraw from the world. What? All right. What else?
2: Yes. God righteously had His people wipe out whole ethnic people groups, and they were righteous in doing
0: so. Right. Now that we got to be careful. It's pointed out. We got to be careful that there. Uh, this point has been made, and I think it's true that. <sighs> You know, it's, it's, a, it's in the context of a theocracy, mm-hmm. right? And they're being used by God to do it, right? Um, that is not our context today. But, you're very right that God used Israel to do it, and they were righteous in doing so.
2: So,
0: no No. No. Michael?
2: Jesus told the disciples to take a sword. to. <coughs> <coughs> We got two, so that's
0: enough. Yeah, yeah. So
2: there is a, a place for self-defense.
0: I, I would agree. Um, I, I would agree, and others have, have pointed out that uh, a good argument made for, for self-defense, and that's been sort of somewhat popular in some sec- in a section of evangelicalism today, defense of that. And some people try to justify uh, pacifism. Um, I I don't think the Bible has any kind. I don't think the Bible has room for that, personally.
1: Are you talking pacifism in fighting, or are you talking about pacifism in that we withdraw from the affairs of state?
0: Pacifism, as far as fighting, brother. Thank you for forcing me to clarify that. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I I don't think that that. I think the. I think. uh, I don't think that's faithful to Scripture, personally. Now, as far as getting revenge, the, the Bible speaks to that. Um, but, yeah, I, I just don't think pacifism is the answer there. Um, moving on. Uh, another another uh, view. That Jesus is explaining the true meaning of God's law. Now, this is a little bit more popular. Uh, several uh, authors argue for this. Um, F. W. Farrer in his book on the life of Christ, he says this: quote, "The new commandments of the Mount of Beatitudes were not meant to abrogate, but rather to complete the law which was spoke from Sinai to them of old." End quote. So this is this is a little bit more popular in evangelical Christianity. So that's a view that that can be taken. Um, won't comment on it yet. Uh, a fifth view is that uh, Jesus is correcting the interpretation of God's law in light of the scribes and Pharisees' misinterpretation and additions. So the idea is is Jesus is explaining, as it's written, said, the true meaning of God's law, and he's correcting Pharisaic misinterpretations of it. This also is a, is a popular view in evangelicalism. Uh, Robert Duncan Culver, in his book on the life of Christ, he, says, he basically thinks that the sermon shows um, the true meaning of Old Testament ethics and correction and misinterpretation by the rabbis. Now this, I think, is a, a view that people can hold, and it's, it's got some merit to it, but I think it does have some problems. Um... Michael Vlock, in his work, The New Covenant Lawgiver, I think he convincingly argues that Jesus is not giving a correct interpretation of the Mosaic Law or correcting its misinterpretation in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. But instead, and he uses the words quote and contrast, um, but instead he's quoting it and comparing or contrasting it with the law that he is giving. End quote. And he goes to pains, and I think he's right, if you look at the context... Of that itself, in Matthew five twenty-one through forty-eight, he actually quotes, or he says, basically gives a paraphrase of what the law actually says. That that's actually what he's doing. It's not that it's saying what the Pharisees say the law is. Really, when you do a contextual study of it, and he he has, and he convinces me that really what he's doing is he's quoting what the Old Testament actually says. Not what the Pharisees say about it. So that's... Um, again, people hold it. I just, I just think that it falls short. Sixth view. Um, that the sermon is for the future millennial age. Uh, it's been helpfully pointed out. There's a few critiques of it given by John Martin, which I think are really good. But uh, as it's been pointed out by a few people, a couple of people the conditions described in the sermon aren't congruent with the millennial age. Like, if you just read the um, sermon itself, you just realize that the, that things that are described don't match up. So I don't think that that works. Uh, number seven. The sermon is meant to expose our sin and to show us our inability to keep it, which basically puts us... Uh, shoves us to Christ for salvation and dependence upon his righteousness and a few scholars talk about that view um, this is what I mentioned last week uh, John Martin called the, uh, the penitential view or he mentions the, the Lutheran view, he mentions like the repentance view, terms of that nature and I will say that for a while this was basically my view of it by and large, pretty much um he mentions about the impossibility to keep the law's demands. He points. He also points out that basically, just because, and I think he's, he's this is insightful on it. Martin talks about how you know just because that something's difficult doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, right? Um, and he also mentions in the New Testament how the Lord gives us commands that are you know impossible to keep, and he's not the only one who goes down that route. Um, I think that the sermon can point out your inability to keep it. And uh, one author, Craig Blomberg, has a, has a good little uh, point that out pretty helpfully. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're very straightforward with it, you'll realize that you do fall short. So it does do that. But I don't think Jesus has given that sermon just to show, just alone to show, that we all are just horrible sinners and we can't keep it. I don't think that's what's, what's going on there. Um, number eight. The sermon is describing the kingdom of God and or the ethics of the kingdom. This is a bit more popular. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, in his uh, book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, when he speaks about the sermon in Matthew, he says this, quote, The kingdom of God is presented successfully, or successively, excuse me, success, uh, successively, progressively and extensively, end quote. A.B. Bruce uh, says this in his book, The Training of the Twelve, quote, but Jesus himself did something more than proclaim the advent of the kingdom. He expounded the nature of the divine kingdom, described the character of its citizens, and discriminated between genuine and spurious members of the whole... uh, I definitely did a typo there. I'll skip that. Basically, of the commonwealth. Or the whole commonwealth should be, I think. This he did partly in what is familiar, uh, familiarly called the Sermon on the Mount, of the Mount, and then went down a little bit. And partly in certain parables uttered about the same period. So basically Bruce talks about how um, he's describing the nature of, of the kingdom of God and how people should live in it. Uh this is basic D.A. Carson holds a, a similar uh view. He says, quote, it provides ethical guidelines for life in the kingdom, but it does so within an explanation of the place of the contemporary setting within redemption history and Jesus' relation to the Old Testament, end quote. And uh basically I'll I'll save a few of the others. So that's a little bit more of a of a popular view. Um, before I move on, any questions about anything so far? Any clarifications or comments? Yeah. John.
1: Was it Mennonite? Amish?
0: Uh, Mennonite and Anabaptist.
1: Okay. Well, do you remember? I, I don't know. I think the Amish are kind of asked those but I don't know if that's based on that. But
0: I think so. Yeah. It was that
1: time uh, uh, maybe ten years ago where that guy went in there and killed all those uh, kids in that Amish community? Do you remember all that? And that
0: has a ring of familiarity, but anyway, yeah.
1: And they didn't put back, but it was a witness to the forgiveness that they had to... I don't know how the, the shooter was taken out or anything, but it's an example of them, I guess,
0: of what they believe. In that story. Yeah. yeah. If there, you know, consistency, right? Uh, there, There is something to be uh, commended for that, at least. Yeah. If for nothing else. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, Rob? Uh,
3: Sergeant York, that old movie, it's all black and white. There's a good section in there dealing with Hmm. and he, he wrestled through it the one that was the most decorated uh, uh, soldier in World war one sorry york he actually with eight other guys took prison there like 300 men, basically. Uh, but he would in the movie he's really good at it. He, uh, he he actually wrestled through a lot of the arguments
0: of what pacifism versus yeah
3: because yeah. yeah. he didn't want to go because he was caught you know thou shalt not kill
0: Which uh, is an impetus for us to study the scriptures, right, and see how we work out our ethic in light of the whole text, right? And right of the whole whole scripture as as well, and sort through those things. It's important. Scripture definitely speaks to um, contemporary context for sure. All right, Uh, another view. Uh, Craig Blomberg takes a uh, quote unquote inaugurated eschatology view. Um, he's the one who mentioned, he cites a guy named C. Bauman. uh, Remember, I kept throwing out how there's 36 different interpretations. That's where I got that from. He cites somebody else who said that. Um, So Blomberg says this. He says, quote, Inaugurated eschatology recognizes an already not yet tension in which the sermon's ethic remains the ideal or goal for all Christians in every age, but which will never be fully realized until the consummation of the kingdom at Christ's return, end quote. And I think there's, there's something to be said for that, um, that it's the ideal, but it won't be realized, to use his terms. Um, I definitely think it has an application for today. Um, and I, I do like that he recognizes the fact that it, uh, the sermon's ideals are so high that nobody can completely keep them, at least in this, in this life. I think he's, he's honest with it. But, as is pointed out, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't obey it. Um, any questions on that one? Okay. Alright. Um, Dwight Pentecost has a view about this. It's kind of an interesting one. He kind of combines a, a few different ones. Uh, basically points out uh, one of the things he says about it is that, uh, quote, Christ in the sermon repudiated Pharisaic righteousness as providing a basis for acceptance by Messiah into his kingdom. He offered himself as the only basis for righteousness that, one, that would admit one into his kingdom. And then he kind of goes on, and I'll, I'll skip that. Um, I think that Jesus really is, in the sermon, pointing people to himself he's not the only author who talks about that but I I think there's a a point to be made on that Um, another view 11 uh, the sermon was meant to provide a temporary way of life a you'll see see this term a quote unquote interim ethic in view of uh, in view of the future I believe one author uses the term apocalypse now this interim ethic was made popular by liberal theologian Albert Schweitzer But there's kind of an evangelical uh, way to look at it, and I I I think there's a lot of truth to this. Uh, Stanley Toussaint, in his commentary on Matthew, kind of holds to this, an interim ethic. Um, He says, "Quote: The discourse presents a description of the good fruit, the fruit of repentance. It is concerned with the life of the disciples were to live in light of the coming kingdom." And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think when you look at the sermon, it really is presenting a way for Jesus's disciples a way to live in view of the kingdom, and we'll and we'll talk about that. And then finally, uh, number twelve, the sermon is new covenant law, which Vlock talks of, that's Michael Vlock's term. He's the one who proposes this view, which is quote the law of Christ and quote given by the new covenant lawgiver Jesus the Messiah to his disciples. This is his view. Um, he says, quote, So then, the Sermon on the Mount reveals the standards by which those who belong to King Jesus should live. End quote. Um, this view seems pretty convincing to me. Um, Jesus really is, he argues, he's contrasting the Old Testament law with what he is, is giving. And as he, as it's pointed out, and as he says, you know, Jesus is not about abolishing the law. I mean, that's very clear in the text, right? You just read that at face value in Matthew, in, where he says, I've not come to abolish, right, but to fulfill. And he does, and we'll talk about that. But, but I think that uh, he argues that there is a, there's a change. There's a transition in the sermon, and I, I think he's right. So, any questions before we move on and actually look at the text a little bit more? About the different views. Okay. Um,
4: yeah. I have question. Yeah, yeah. So, with the, I think you said it was like the Lutheran view.
0: Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's yeah, that's how it's described. Kind
4: of essentially, the law showing us our need for Christ, giving right. us to Him, is that right?
0: Right, basically, yeah.
4: It seems like that one and then this last one that you're talking about would work together.
0: I think it can. And I think
4: that maybe these views aren't necessarily exclusive. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, my own view is a is a, is a mix <laughs> which is kind of a lot of my theology to be honest with you. Uh, but um, it's a, it's a mix of a few different of a few different ones. I think um, one of the or a few, I, I can't remember who, but talk about the comparison of the righteousness and puts, oh, Pentecost talks about, he compares it to and puts down the Pharisaic righteousness. And there's a huge part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is calling out the Pharisees. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. I mean, he, he is, where he talks about the hypocrites, that's who he's talking about. He's, he's talking about them and, maybe somebody makes this argument, but it I see in Matthew where he talks about beware of false teachers he's talking about them that's who he means um, there's a term that uh, Old Testament guy out at Shepherds in Cary, North Carolina uses the term transgenerational um, and uh, he's, he's talking about it in the context of the uh, Olivet Discourse but I think it works here Where in the sermon, you have the sermon which is given a particular context. But, as we apply it, right, it's not stuck there. Right? The the sermon's not stuck in the past. That it can apply to us as well. And we have to just use wisdom on how to apply it. Let me give you an example of what I I mean. Um, Maybe somebody points this out, but it jumps out to me. In Matthew 5, where it talks about... When, uh, in the context about being angry, right, and how you be guilty, liable to the fire of hell, and in the application, it says if if you remember that somebody has something, your brother has something against you, right? You're to leave your gift where at the altar. altar. When was the last time anyone left their gift at the altar here in this room? And I don't mean what what I don't mean what has been pointed out in the 19th century. People called the altar right, this this padded little thing. At least it was in 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 my church growing up. Uh, when, this padded little thing where you came up and rededicated your life to Jesus for the 500th time. That's not what I mean. <laughs> That's not what that means, right? When you spoke to a Jewish audience, the term altar, they know exactly what, they meant, what you meant. So can we leave our gift at the altar? In that sense, no. But, I think we can make a pretty obvious application, where if we are worshipping our Lord, in our context, right, in, on every Resurrection Sunday, Every day? Yeah. But as far as the context of our formal worship, I mean, that's, that's one application you can make, right? Of going and trying to, to reconcile in that sense. So, you have a context to where the Jews know exactly what he's talking about, but it doesn't necessarily transfer over to one-to-one, because we don't have a literal altar that we have our gift at. But we can apply it in our, in our context. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, I
3: to say so. uh, two things. Uh in my studies in Aramaic, we have to always remember this, that there's two audiences. The first audience was Jesus listening in Aramaic, not Greek. And it was the original uh, Sermon on the Mount people. I mean, like, I don't know was the 5,000 or a large people. And that was the original audience. But this was written in either the 50s or the 60s. And I would say, I like to say this, that Matthew is editing this, and it's the original audience is the church. You can say, you can argue that the original audience was this 50s and 60s church. Yeah. So a lot of the times the gospel writers, they don't change these words, but they edit it and organize it in a way that applies there. So, so there's really two audiences and, and, and then that, and that, of course, would be a funny Greek. Yeah, two yeah.
0: I, think, I think the essence of that is you know, I think is, is helpful and that's pointed out too, like was it I can't remember exactly which one, maybe it was Martin, but basically it's pointed out the fact that, you know, like, Matthew's writing it, Matthew's including it. There's a reason why it's in there. And um, he also, I think it was him, forgive me if it's not, but pointed out that, you know, at the end, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Right? Teaching them to observe what? Oh, I've commanded you. Does that not include the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, it does. That's pointed out. I I think that that's helpful. So, um, okay. Yeah, Scott.
5: It seems that Jesus is taking um, the righteousness of God um, and taking it to another level. He's taking it through the event into the intention.
0: Yeah, that that is uh, that's definitely a view that's expressed. What can you point me to a text where you would get that from?
5: No, I just the just whole, the impression. The whole impression. Is okay. Every one of these, when you read, it, it starts with the law, and then he takes it to the next level, and basically he's taking it from the event itself, the sin, and expanding it to your thought, to your very intention of why you sin is sin. So it just almost puts it out of reach. I mean, it's like. Who, who can, who can do this? just—I think he, the audience—he's speaking to it, the Pharisees—is like, you turn your cheek. If you, if you strike your cheek, you do this. It's, it's just a bunch of laws, a lot of things to do. He's taking it beyond that, at least for me. Yeah. Um, to why am I singing? What's what's my what's the status of my heart in doing? These things. Right. And I don't know that the Pharisees ever talked about that part. It was just strictly a law. The, the things in, that they did.
0: Yeah, they it's pointed, yeah, they certainly were, you know it's talked about how they were kind of just on the surface of the law keeping. And and you notice that in the Sermon on the Mount, it it let's just be honest, does it convict you? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You know the, the reason why that the view gets you know why ever why we resonate with that is because we've all felt it we've all been there all of us for honest I certainly think that's an effect of the sermon and I do certainly think that it does show us how far short we fall but I I think uh, what again. Uh, just pulling from Vlock's view, he talks about basically it's it's the law of the new covenant, which he um, maybe he points this out, but uh, others it's been pointed out elsewhere. With the new covenant, the new covenant deals with what the heart, right? It deals with the heart. It internalizes, right? It internalizes. You could even say the law of God, does it not? And so it would be make a lot of sense for if it was New Covenant law to actually get to the root heart of the issue. So when Jesus says things like you know, but I say you know, I say to you, uh, whoever looks intent, you know, with lustful intent, right, or anger, or what's um, a- another one? Like a big one. I'll get you in a second, brother. I will. Thank you. Um, the oath in the writing it, it, oath is a big one right the oath is like I swear and Jesus says don't, don't even don't even take an oath at all what's he say let your yes. and your no. no be no as is pointed out he's getting to the heart basically just be truthful in what you say yeah Michael
2: That and is pointed out, that's it true. Also, it also commanded you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the Old Covenant did address the heart, uh, but it, it was uh, largely unseen. It was it was seen by those who, who knew the Lord, but there were others that, that didn't know and did not see that, that aspect of the law. But Christ says He's giving this law is giving it very differently from the old. It's not. Uh, he's not giving the law as a covenant of works. The old, the old law was given as, you do this and you'll remain my people as long as you do this. But uh, this is given in, in a very different way. Uh, it's not. It's not given in that way as a covenant. Of works. Hmm.
0: Thank you for thank you for sharing those thoughts. Um, I I think the Bible makes it pretty clear that the Mosaic Law did not have, I think it's pointed out, in its own power to change the heart. It didn't. It didn't. Um, It's pointed out so helpfully that the new covenant does. It it does. Um, Any other thoughts? Or This is good. Any other thoughts or comments? Well, like you just said, yeah.
2: um, not only is it internalized in the new covenant, I will yeah. put my law in your heart, but I will put my spirit within you. So that's
1: a key difference, maybe, from the old. Um, but it, absolutely,
0: it
3: very much
1: um, resonates with Luke, is that all these, like since you
2: said four all the way through the yeah, end, I can see how these can all be synthesized in they're really right. And even the Old Testament. I mean, when I read David or the Proverbs or the Prophets, it doesn't. It's not different. From
0: yeah. Yeah, it's it's um Thank you, brother. That's 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 good. I uh yeah, go ahead. Kind of thinking back and off of what he said, also promised in there is obedience, which you know, they're finally able to obey the law because they have a new heart and a new spirit, and uh that's one of that nice trifecta that we also can enjoy uh is the obedience aspect, being able to follow the law, given the ability. Hmm. Thank you. So um there are a lot of good. There are a lot of views that would seem to match up very well with the text. Um, you know, you men are, are welcome to hold them. Uh, of course, I'm no authority to say otherwise. Uh, you know, just we our challenge is to try to make it line up with the text as closely as we possibly can, and try to harmonize it with the rest of Scripture. Uh, my view, how I read it, uh, and this is sort of a and I'll just be up front it's kind of a blend of like several <laughs> several like Vlock and Two Saints and Pentecost and McLean and elements I think of others that basically in view of the kingdom's coming Jesus the Messiah he sets forth his new covenant law and that's from Vlock and he calls it the law of Christ which provides a guiding interim ethic for his disciples and prepares them for entry into the kingdom that's that's how I that's how I take it. Um, I like how McLean in his work, the greatness of the kingdom, emphasizes the continuity of the presented kingdom with the kingdom in the Old Testament in multiple aspects, including uh, he has several, but including what he calls the spiritual and the moral nature of the, of the kingdom. My ideas are in large part, large measure, if not in total, really gleaned from from these guys. Um, so, some contextual things. Remember the context in which Jesus is preaching this. Right? Jesus is preaching this sermon, but has he been preaching before? What's the answer to that? Yes, yes. thank you. Yes. Yes, he has been preaching before, right? He's been preaching what? What has been the topic of his sermons? Say again. The message, of John. the message of John, which yes, exactly, and which is the what repentance. repentance, because the kingdom is near, right? Authors have pointed this out. It's just you just read straight from the text. You can see it. He's been preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's been preaching the good news, or as is pointed out, the term gospel of the kingdom. That's what he's been preaching. Second. What is Jesus just got done doing? Heal. Yes, he did heal. What else? What was the big thing that he prayed all night to prepare for? As is pointed out, his apostles. His apostles right? He chose his apostles. It's pointed out that that's a that's a big contextual thing. I like what David Smith and uh, J, uh, J. W. Shepherd. They know. They think that the sermon serves as is quote an ordination sermon. End quote. And I, 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 that's really true. We can't, we can't lose that. Um, it's also pointed out by several that the sermon is directed to Jesus' to his disciples, but the crowd is also in the audience, and they're listening. And it's pointed out that he addresses them too. That there are things there. So it's primarily to the disciples, but there also are onlookers. And... It's, it's pointed out, and it's just, this is so critical. The kingdom is the central focus to the sermon. The kingdom of God is. Let's just look, actually, at the text, the few minutes we have here. We'll just go, let's just go right through it. Matthew 5, verse 3. Vlock points out how it's mentioned eight times, and then if you clu- include the disputed passage uh, about for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, it's nine. I actually, if you include that, would count ten. Because I throw Luke in there as well. We don't want to forget about Luke. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the w- kingdom of heaven. Very good. Matthew, uh, Luke 6, and verse 20. Luke 6 and verse 20. Which basically, see, I'm not even ready. How about that? He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the, we go again, kingdom of heaven. Matthew five, nineteen. it's mentioned twice. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five twenty, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew six, verse ten, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew six thirty-three. But seek first the what? Kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Matthew seven, twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the kingdom is central. Now, this was a a great observation made by McLean in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. The term, kingdom of heaven, that the phrase actually comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel. And he points out particularly these two passages, Daniel 2.44 and Daniel 7.13-14. Let me read them to you. Daniel 2.44 says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." And then Daniel 7, 13-14 says this, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." and i caught this verse here daniel 7:27 says this and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him and as is pointed out kingdom of heaven is repeatedly stated in matthew the term kingdom of heaven was not just invented it has an Old Testament context. And Daniel makes mention of it. And I like what McLean has to say. He says this, quote, Thus read in the light of its Old Testament, evident Old Testament context, the phrase kingdom of heaven does not refer to a kingdom located in heaven as opposed to the earth, but rather to the coming to earth of a kingdom which is heavenly as to its origin and character. End quote. So that's how we take the term kingdom of heaven. Kingdom is a key, underst- key element of understanding the sermon on the mount. And it doesn't mean a kingdom located in the somewhere out there. It doesn't mean it's a kingdom in heaven as opposed to one that's, as he says, heavenly in nature. And note... The heavenly nature of the discourse in the sermon. Eighteen times in sixteen verses you will see the term heaven or heavenly in the, in the text. I'm sure somebody's noted this, pointed this out. But you'll see kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. Your reward in heaven. And then your father who is in heaven. Heaven and earth. The kingdom of heaven twice in Matthew 5.19. And then on and on and on it goes with the term kingdom of heaven or father who's in heaven, heaven being the throne of God, treasures in heaven, mentioned many, many times. We also note, and this is, Toussaint talks about God being pointed out as father in the sermon, but notice that God is primarily in this sermon referred to, not exclusively, but primarily referred to as father in the sermon. That's how God is, re- is referred to. 18 times in 16 verses. And I notice this. I don't know if it has any sort of import or importance. But it's interesting how throughout the sermon, when God is referred to His Father, it's your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father. You get an Our Father in there, in the, in, this, in the prayer, in the Lord's Prayer. But yet the last time in the sermon where Jesus says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, one to the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of, and then the pro changes, to my Father. Which shows me, I, I think, there's a little bit of a, a warning there. Like if you're not doing the will of the Father, that He's not your Father. But Jesus points Him as my Father. God is also named as God seven times in the, in the seven verses. It's also pointed out by scholars, the future-oriented nature of the kingdom and the focus on rewards, which are by their nature, future-looking. Um, you look at the term rewards, it's 11 times in 11 verses. Um, Matthew 5:12 your reward is great in heaven. Luke 6:23 your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 5:46 what reward do you have? Luke 6:35 your reward will be great in the future. Uh, basically Matthew 6:1 you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Matthew 6:2 they have received the reward on and on it, and on it goes. Take a look for example at Matthew 6:18. Matthew 6:18. We're talking about fasting in secret. Right? fasting, it's secret. It, it's um, interesting, both um, their giving and their praying and their uh, fasting are all supposed to be done in secret. But just Matthew 6.18. or We'll start at 17 for context. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will what? Reward you. Here's the obvious question: When? When? In this life and the next. Well, there, there. Yeah, he can reward you this life and the next. But I would argue that the sermon is pointing to the future. To the future.
4: In that, in that pointing to the future, that also does give us some measure of reward now just with the hope (laughs) I mean I have a hope for a future that helps me immensely whether I see like the promises of God to me are a reward because I know that he's going to make good on it and that helps me now but I'll also receive it in its fullness in the future
0: I, I, they certainly are a motivating factor, right? And they do give us hope and encouragement. In the Old Testament, there, there, is a, there is also a focus on rewards. For example, Genesis 15, verse 1, where God says to Abram, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or Psalm 58, verse 11 which is, as the text describes, a miktam of David. David says this, Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Or take Isaiah 40, verse 10, which says this, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. Or Isaiah 62, verse 11, which says this, Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Yes?
1: What's your delineation between kingdom of heaven and hell? Or how do you define those? Or how do you think it's defined here?
0: I think, well, heaven is the place where God dwells, right? Is the place that God dwells. You know, typically it's described, uh, you know, that there's the three heavens, right? You have the heaven, which is the sky above. Then you have, you know, the celestial, right, space, that kind of thing. And the third heaven is where where God dwells. That would be heaven. And then kingdom of heaven, as it's described here in Matthew, is referring to the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament and was continued to be scribed in the New Testament. That's where I think the kingdom of heaven is. And I think that Daniel points out that, that it's, uh, the term Heaven, kingdom of heaven comes from Daniel. And it's the kingdom that Daniel promised and was in continuity with all the other kingdom of the Old Testament prophets. To give it simply like that. But anyway, the point is is that the rewards are very prominent in the Old Testament and there are other things too The practical implications of the Sermon on the Mount Just, just quickly um, Pointed out, Matthew 5, 13-16 through 16, That the disciples are to be salt Right? A preservative And a light to the world So definitely a, a uh, Practical application here And notice how Practical the Sermon on the Mount is That Jesus gives Practical guidance to his followers on how to live Over and over and over again Right? How to resolve your disputes. How to cut off your enticements to sin. How basically, essentially, as is pointed out, you you don't divorce except for a lone exception. At least in in Jesus' context, he gives a lone exception. How you don't take an oath. How you don't, you don't, uh, there's no retribution. You give generously to love your enemies, to be merciful, to secretly give to the needy. Uh, How to pray. How to fast. Putting your treasure in the right place, not being anxious, judging rightly, asking the Lord, doing a, the golden rule, as it said, right? Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, bewaring of false prophets, assessing a person by their fruit. And there are also, to close it out, warnings. Right? Warnings in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to Saint helpfully points out that the disciples. Basically, the term for disciples doesn't all mean that they're genuinely saved. That there are, he points out to John 6.66, right? After Jesus says, talks about how you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and it was too difficult for them, so they left. Those people were called disciples. And yet they weren't truly converted. That's something that he, he points to. But notice the warnings in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five twenty. Unless your righteousness exceeds those of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter. Matthew five twenty two. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew five twenty nine through thirty. Warning that basically you cut off whatever would cause you to sin, because you don't want your whole body to go to hell. Uh, I love Luke includes which Matthew doesn't the woes. Which also is a warning. Matthew 7.13, the gate is wide and the way is easy. Matthew 7.19, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And of course, Matthew 7.21-23, right on that day, many will come and say, Lord, Lord. That's a warning. And then I would say, the very end of the conclusion of the sermon is a warning itself right you as pointed out you have the two houses with the two foundations those who build their life on the words of the messiah what happens they stand you can maybe make an argument there they they stand in the judgment or maybe that they stand in the persecution and those who don't what happens they're swept away so there is warning in the sermon. So I, I would, I would uh, those are some of the aspects, highlights of the sermon. Any thoughts or questions before we conclude? Um, I do
4: have a question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple times like interim ethical
0: Yeah, the interim ethic, yes. Yeah.
4: Um, what is that what, what are we talking about
0: From the from the moment Jesus spoke it to we're living in it right now?
4: And then it, does it have an end point or is it it continues on?
0: I would say that it would I would say that it would at least last till Jesus comes back but I would say it would even I would say it would even extend well after Jesus comes back as, as well I so think, like the yeah.
4: passages in the Psalms talk about like, the law of the Lord and their forever things mm-hmm. like that to me I was like interim seems like there's a start and end time on it but I didn't know that the
0: about understanding it correctly. I would say maybe to be safe, you would say from that point until the new heavens and new earth, just to be just to be safe with that. Anything else? What
1: were the
0: two Daniel passages? Two, two? D- Daniel two forty four and Matthew. Uh, no, Matthew. Good grief. Uh, Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen. Anything else? Yeah, real quick. of
3: uh, the kingdom study, yeah, it's about a whole semester study. It's a massive study, and one thing you always want to remember is the citizenry. He is recruiting citizens of the kingdom, that's why we get it. Uh, so, this the, the, the kingdoms of God starts with Jesus, and as he gets his 12 and all the disciples, he's preparing people. I'm, I'm, I love the Middle Ages and I love castles and I love the New Jerusalem coming out of the sky but the kingdom of God is the people and, and I'm going to love them golden streets and I'm a very materialist I'm going to be geeking out over the first gates. but what I'm really really excited about is the work that God's doing in the people and I think that's where the kingdom is expanding the kingdom of God is expanding for the last 2,000 years as people can say
0: yeah, well you can't have a kingdom without people Right? So we got to go out and find them.
2: I wonder, do you think believers, members of the kingdom, would be able to live ethical lives that glorify the Lord without the servant on the
0: I would say that the instruction that we. Okay, so (laughs) that's a. Well, can I have a cop-out answer, brother? We could talk about that more. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a cop-out answer. It's a long
2: discussion.
0: Yeah, it is. But I would just say that everything we have in the Bible is necessary, right? So um, I would say because the Lord deemed it necessary and it's there that He think we needed it. So my answer in that is no. How's that? <laughs> That's a cop-out answer. I, I will admit it. Um, no, I-, I do think we need it. But I-, I do think that the instruction we have in the New Testament is robust. Well,
2: I didn't ask if we need it. Just if Christians could live... Oh.
0: Thank you for calling me on that. Um, I think a lot of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is... Um, Echoed in, other, echoed in other places and pointed out in other places. I, in my reading, I looked at the fact that people talk about the similarity between the Sermon on the Mount and James, for example. Um, let me think about that a little bit more. Alright, let's pray.